Chapter 3 of David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kevin Manley David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology By James Orr Life of Hume, Part 2 Literary Labors Till the Publication of the History Hume was too genuine a philosopher to allow himself to be unduly depressed by the apparent failure of his first attempt at authorship, and accordingly he is found without delay setting himself to the preparation for publication of the third book of his treatise, That on Morals. This part of the work, as following on the treatment of the understanding and the passions, deals with moral judgments, and the qualities of virtue and vice in character and actions. It comes, therefore, properly under the general head of an inquiry into human nature, and is conducted on the same principles of rigorous experimental analysis as the previous books, but without startling the reader with the skeptical paradoxes of the speculative sections. In handling moral questions, Hume was entering a field which, since the time of Hobbes, English philosophers had diligently cultivated, and on which more recently interest had been concentrated by the lectures of Francis Hutcheson. Not unnaturally, therefore, he was anxious to obtain the opinions and suggestions of the distinguished Glasgow moralist on his performance, and submitted his manuscript to Dr. Hutcheson for this purpose. An interesting correspondence ensued, chiefly remarkable as showing how tenaciously, while welcoming criticism from others, Hume held by his own ideas. This is characteristic of his epistolary intercourse all through. An incidental result of the correspondence was the opening of an acquaintance between Hume and a Mr. Smith, no doubt Adam Smith, then a student at Glasgow and barely seventeen. Hume probably, at Hutcheson's suggestion, sent Smith a copy of his treatise, a fact which sufficiently indicates the report he had received of the youthful Adam's abilities. It comes out in another letter that Hume was desirous of changing his publisher, and obtained from Hutcheson an introduction to Mr. Longman. It was actually by this publisher that the book was bought out in 1740. Apart from a stray fact or two, as, for instance, his attempt to obtain a tutorship in a nobleman's family with a view to travel, Hume's life at this stage is little more than a record of his literary labors. In 1741 appeared in Edinburgh the first volume of his Essays Moral and Political, speedily followed by the second volume in 1742. The essays, like the treatise, were published anonymously, but had a distinctly better reception. The work, Hume says, was favorably received and soon made me entirely forget my former disappointment. To Henry Home, he writes in 1742, The essays are all sold in London, as I am informed by two letters from English gentlemen of my acquaintance. There is a demand for them, and as one of them tells me, Innes, the great bookseller in Paul's churchyard, wonders there is not a new edition, for that he cannot find copies for his customers. I am also told that Dr. Butler has everywhere recommended them, so that I hope they will have some success. 
This popularity of the essays is not surprising. They were cast in a mold at that time fashionable. Hume tells us they were originally designed as weekly papers on the model of the spectator and the craftsman. But beyond this, alike in the selection and variety of their subjects and the finish of their style, they exhibited qualities which, to discerning minds, gave them at once a high rank in literature. As at first published, the volumes contained 27 essays. Of these, as many as eight were gradually dropped, while several new ones were introduced and other changes made. The third edition, for instance, published in 1748, omitted three of the original essays and received an addition of three. The next years in Hume's history are comparatively uneventful. Two occurrences slightly break the monotony. In 1743 to 1744, some stir was caused by a sermon published by the Reverend Dr. Leachman of Bythe on prayer, followed by the appointment of its author to the Chair of Divinity in the University of Glasgow. The sermon, which resolved the efficacy of prayer into its reflex influence on the mind of the worshipper, was submitted to Hume for suggestions through his friend William, afterwards Baron, Muir of Caldwell. And the reply is interesting, as showing how far Hume's mind was severed from everything in religion, except, as he says, the practice of morality and the assent of the understanding to the proposition that God exists. Affection to deity cannot, he thinks, owing to the invisibility and incomprehensibility of its object, be required of man as his duty, and even, were devotion never so much admitted, prayer must still be excluded. He shows that Dr. Leachman's doctrine reduces prayer to a kind of rhetorical figure, and by encouraging the idea that prayers have a direct influence, leads directly and even unavoidably to blasphemy. On the main point, therefore, though from opposite sides, Hume and Dr. Leachman's theological opponents were at one. The other event which gives a little color to this period is the effort made by Hume to secure the appointment to the chair of ethics and pneumatic philosophy in the University of Edinburgh. The occupant of the chair, Dr., afterwards Sir John Pringle, had been appointed physician to the Earl of Stair, commander of the British forces in the Low Countries, and in accordance with the loose practice of these times, had been for two years absent from his duties in the university. The Council of Edinburgh, to which he offered his resignation, thought it necessary that at least a term be put to his further absence, and in March 1745 he actually did resign. When the vacancy was in prospect, Hume was induced to put himself forward as a candidate, August 1744, and backed by the provost's influence, thought himself secure of the appointment. I found presently, he writes, that I should have the whole council on my side, and that, indeed, I should have no antagonist. Opposition, however, soon showed itself, and from unexpected quarters. The accusation of heresy, deism, skepticism, atheism, etc., 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 he says, was started against me, but never took, being bore down by the contrary opinion of all the good company in town. Much more to his surprise, he found that Mr. Hutchison and even Mr. Leachman were in the ranks of those who agreed that he was a very unfit person for such an office. The efforts also of the good company to persuade the public that Hume was no heretic, deist, or skeptic must have failed, 
for when the vacancy actually occurred, his name was not even mentioned. The post was given in June 1745 to William Claycorn, who had taught in Dr. Pringle's absence. A disagreeable episode in Hume's career fills up the interval from April 1745 to April 1746. The Marquis of Annandale, last of that title, a man of excitable disposition, and as it proved in the first stages of insanity, had been attracted by Hume's essays, and early in 1745, invited Hume to become his companion at his residence at Weld Hall near St. Albans in Hertfordshire. He sent Hume 100 pounds, and finally an arrangement was come to by which Hume was to receive 300 pounds a year so long as the connection lasted. The position, though not an enviable one, had its obvious advantages, and Hume might have endured it but for the offensive tyranny of a Captain Vincent, a relation of the Dowager Marchioness, to whom was entrusted the management of the Marquis' affairs. The self-seeking designs of this man Hume early detected and sought to counteract, with the result that Vincent, who at first had been friendly, became his bitter enemy, plotted to reduce his salary by one half, and made his situation as servile and galling as a man of coarse nature invested with authority could. The perturbation of spirit occasioned by his affronts leads Hume to break out in his correspondence into quite unusual strains. He had resisted his suspicions of Vincent, he tells us, as he would a temptation of the devil, and in his excitement he thus accosts Sir James Johnstone. God forgive you, dear sir, God forgive you, for neither coming to us nor writing to us. The Marquis's temper became daily more uncontrollable, and when self-respect could stand the indignities heaped upon him no longer, Hume took his departure. A sequel to the quarrel was a claim put in by Hume for 75 pounds of arrears of salary, the somewhat sordid dispute in regard to which dragged on until at least 1761. It is not known how it was settled. Hume's next experiences were of a much more pleasant order. They relate to his connection with General St. Clair in the capacity of secretary first during a naval expedition conducted in 1746 against the coasts of France and second during a military embassy in 1748 to the court of Turin, the progress of which gave him an opportunity of seeing a large part of the continent. These two years Hume speaks of as almost the only interruptions which my studies have received during the course of my life, language which it is difficult to reconcile with his later occupations in France and England. The expedition first named had a somewhat inglorious history. It was originally intended to be sent against the French possessions in Canada, then resolved itself into a descent on the coast of France itself. It set sail on 14th September 1746 and landed its forces on the 20th at the town of Fort Orient on the coast of Brittany. The attempt to compel the town to surrender proved a failure. Sickness set in and in less than a week it was found necessary to raise the siege and retreat the fleet. The expedition soon after returned home. In addition to his position as secretary, Hume was appointed by the general judge advocate to all the forces under his command. He formed besides valuable acquaintances and saw a little of actual warfare. The most interesting point in his correspondence in this period is the indication of certain historical projects, 
which we can trace rapidly settling into the purpose of writing a history. The year 1747 was spent at Ninewells, an interval of which his biographer takes advantage to introduce some specimens of Hume's versification and to discuss the probability of his ever having been in love. Assuredly, if the Clarindas and Lauras of Hume's muse were real persons, his passion for them must have been of a very mild sort. Nor, while avowing himself fond of the society of modest women, does he ever seem to have been peculiarly susceptible to female charms. In his essays, as Mr. Burton says, he frequently discusses the passion of love, dividing it into its elements about as systematically as if he had subjected it to a chemical analysis and laying down rules regarding it as distinctly and specifically as if it were a system of logic. It was in the year following, 1748, that General St. Clair showed his appreciation of Hume's previous services by inviting him to attend him as his secretary on his mission to Turin. This was an opportunity not to be lost, though it was not without regret that Hume laid aside the plans of study he had formed. We now hear from him distinctly. I have long had an intention in my riper years of composing some history, but he was wise enough to see that some wider experiences of cities and men and of the intrigues of the cabinet would be a valuable aid in the carrying out of his design. Nor did the experience of the next few months disappoint his expectations. His letters begin to show an unwanted interest in people and things, and his descriptions of the cities through which he passed, of the Hague, Breda, Nijmegen, Cologne, Bonn, Koblenz, Frankfurt, Ratisbon, on to Vienna, Trent, Mantua, and finally Turin, are lively and entertaining. His enthusiasm for Virgil comes out at Mantua. We are now on classic ground, and I have kissed the earth that produced Virgil, and have admired those fertile plains that he has so finely celebrated. But it is noted that he never once condescends to mention any of the fine specimens of Gothic architecture he met with in his progress, not even the imposing fragment of the Cathedral of Cologne. Hume's appearance on this embassy, clad in military scarlet, seems to have afforded some entertainment to his friends, if one may judge from the grotesque description given of him by that versatile Irish politician, Lord Charlemont. Nature, I believe, says this witness, never formed any man more unlike his real character than David Hume. The powers of physiognomy were baffled by his countenance. Neither could the most skillful in that science pretend to discover the smallest trace of the faculties of his mind in the unmeaning features of his visage. His face was broad and fat, his mouth wide, and without any other expression than that of an imbecility, his eyes vacant and spiritless, and the corpulence of his whole person was far better fitted to communicate the idea of a turtle-eating alderman than of a refined philosopher. His speech in English was rendered ridiculous by the broadest Scottish accent, and his French was, if possible, still more laughable, so that wisdom most certainly never disguised herself before in so uncouth a garb. Though now near fifty years of age, he was thirty-seven, 
He was healthy and strong, but his health and strength, far from being advantageous to his figure, instead of manly comeliness, had only the appearance of rusticity. His wearing a uniform added greatly to his natural awkwardness, for he wore it like a grocer of the train bands. The mission to Turin was superseded by the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle on 7th October, and at some uncertain date thereafter, Hume returned to London. There, soon after his arrival, he received a great blow in the news of the death of his mother. The reality of his emotion and the spirit in which he met the bereavement are attested by the following narrative by Dr. Carlyle in Inveresk, which also sufficiently disposes of certain absurd stories set afloat by unscrupulous inventors. David and he, the Honorable Mr. Boyle, brother of the Earl of Glasgow, were both in London at the period when David's mother died. Mr. Boyle, hearing of it, soon after went into his apartment, for they lodged in the same house, where he found him in the deepest affliction and in a flood of tears. After the usual topics of condolence, Mr. Boyle said to him, My friend, you owe this uncommon grief to having thrown off the principles of religion, for if you had not, you would have been consoled with the firm belief that the good lady, who was not only the best of mothers but the most pious of Christians, was completely happy in the realms of the just. To which David replied, Though I throw out my speculations to entertain the learned and metaphysical world, yet in other things I do not think so differently from the rest of the world as you imagine. Notwithstanding this utterance, there is no reason to suppose that Hume's general attitude of disbelief in the Christian religion was anything but entirely serious or even altered. Of this, as well as of the unchanged character of his philosophical foundations, a conclusive proof had just been given by the publication in 1748, while he was on his way to Turin, of the recast and popularized version of his speculations under the title of Philosophical Essays Concerning Human Understanding, subsequently modified to Inquiry Concerning the Human Understanding. The book was published in London by Andrew Miller. At first, it bore simply to be by the author of the essays Moral and Political, but in November of the same year, a new edition was issued with the author's name. At first, the inquiry seemed fated to attract as little attention as the treatise, but Hume's growing reputation and the bolder pronouncements of the book on subjects affecting revealed religion soon led to wider notice and hostile criticism. Hume's own design was that this simplified and improved form of his system should take the place of his older work, which he now desired to withdraw from circulation. His feeling on this point is best expressed in the advertisement prefixed to the book in the posthumous and authoritative edition of 1777. He there rebukes the adversaries for directing all their batteries against that juvenile work which the author never acknowledged and have affected to triumph in any advantages which they imagined they had obtained over it. A practice, he says, very contrary to all rules of candor and fair dealing and a strong instance of those polemical artifices which a bigoted zeal thinks itself authorized to employ. Now, however, he expressed desires that the following pieces may alone be regarded as containing his philosophical sentiments and principles. 
It has hardly been seen that Hume's wishes with regard to the neglect of his treatise have not been fulfilled. It is not bigoted zeal, but that world of philosophy and letters to which he appealed, which has refused to let the older work drop out of sight or be displaced by the newer inquiry. It is not simply that the treatise is by far the abler and more vigorous and original work. Beyond this, there is the fact that the second work really alters nothing in the philosophical basis of the first, while it leaves out much that is necessary for the understanding of the system as a whole. It was not, after all, the subject matter, but the lack of popularity of his earlier work which distressed Hume. He claims only that, in the newer handling, some negligences in his former reasoning and more in the expression are, he hopes, corrected. Had it been given to him to foresee the estimate that posterity would put upon his treatise in comparison with its later echo, the suppression of it is the last thing he would have desired. The utmost that can be claimed is that where differences of view emerge, the later statement shall be taken as the final one. One advantage, at least, of the inquiry is that it helps to throw into relief the things that Hume himself thought of most important in his philosophy. While much that is in the treatise is omitted, we have sometimes in briefer, occasionally in a more expanded form, a restatement of his theories on the origin of ideas, an association, on causation, on the idea of necessary connection, on liberty and necessity, etc. While important additions are made in the essays on miracles and on a particular providence and a future state, two extracts will suffice at this stage to show the general spirit of the work, one from the commencement, the other from the close. The first suggests comparison with Kant. The only method of freeing learning at once from these abstruse questions is to inquire seriously into the nature of human understanding and show from an exact analysis of its powers and capacity that it is by no means fitted for such remote and abstruse subjects. We must admit to this fatigue in order to live at case ever after, and must cultivate true metaphysics with some care in order to destroy the false and adulterated. The second is the drastic conclusion dear to Professor Huxley. If we take in our hand any volume of school, divinity, or metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. During 1749 and 1750, Hume lived peacefully at Nine Wells, though brain and pen were still unceasingly busy. His correspondence in these years with Dr. Clefane of London, Colonel Abercrombie, and others reveals a vein of sportiveness not ordinarily found in his compositions. We find him more seriously engaged in earnest preparation of his political discourses, published two years later, and his letters to Dr. Gilbert Elliot, a gentleman of great accomplishment, reveal also that by this time, 1751, he had composed his dialogues concerning natural religion, of which a good deal will afterwards be heard. In these dialogues, which were not published till after his death, the cause of theism is upheld by Cleanthes, 
And Hume tells his correspondent that whatever he can think of to strengthen that side of the argument will be most acceptable to him. Sir Gilbert gave him his views at length, but few will regard the dialogues as a prop to theistic belief. The chief outcome of this period of labor, however, was the publication in 1751 of his inquiry concerning the principles of morals, which answers to the third book of the original treatise and completes, with the exception of the dissertation on the passions, the recasting of that earlier work. The publisher was again Mr. Millar. In Hume's own judgment, this was, of all his works, historical, philosophical, and literary, incomparably the best. Posterity may not endorse this opinion, but most will allow that from a purely literary point of view, the work is elaborated and polished to a high degree. Hume had now clearly grasped the principle of utility as a key to the phenomena of morals and developed his thesis with a skill which made his book a landmark in the history of discussion on the subject. As before, the work attracted little attention at the time, though a reply from the pen of James, afterwards Professor Balfour of Pillerig, appeared in 1753, the ability and courtesy of which induced Hume to seek the acquaintance of the author. It was probably before the appearance of the last-named work that Hume effected the change of his residence to Edinburgh, which opens a new period in his career. The immediate occasion of this step was his brother's marriage, but the removal was prompted also by a natural desire to be in a city already rising to distinction as an abode of letters and affording exceptional facilities for the carrying out of his literary designs. Hume was now, moreover, in comparatively easy circumstances. He was, he tells us, the happy possessor of about 1,000 pounds. He writes to his friend Ramsay, June 1751, that he could reckon on an income of about 50 pounds a year, and by joining with his sister, who bought another 30 pounds, was able, with frugality, to set up a house in the capital. Accordingly, somewhat later in the year, he removed, as he informs us, from the country to the town, the true scene for a man of letters. His first settled residence, of which, however, he does not seem to have taken possession till about May 1752, was in Riddell's Land, near the head of the West Bow, in the Lawn Market. Next year, he removed to Jack's Land, another of Edinburgh's tall tenements in the Canongate. Here he remained till his purchase in 1762 of a house of his own in James's court. It was shortly after this removal to Edinburgh in 1752 that Hume published his political discourses, mostly on subjects of political economy, and as remarkable in their grasp of sound principles as in their anticipations of some of the later doctrines of Adam Smith in his Wealth of Nations. He speaks of this book as the only work of mine that was successful on its first publication, and informs us that it was well received abroad and at home. An indication of this acceptance is that a translation of it was soon made into French. The book was published by Kincaid of Edinburgh, and in its original form consisted of twelve essays. One of these, On the Populousness of Ancient Nations, affords striking evidence of the author's wide range of reading and faculty of just observation and evoked a good deal of controversy. 
The essay on an ideal commonwealth, which closes the volume, on the other hand, as conspicuously illustrates Hume's limitations as a constructive thinker. It is as curious a daydream as ever emanated from the brain of a really sensible man. Meanwhile, the winter of 1751 had seen Hume involved in a fresh attempt to obtain the dignity of professor. The chair of logic had become vacant by the transferences of Adam Smith to the chair of moral philosophy, and Hume's friends, with his concurrence, interested themselves to secure the position for him, but as before, in vain. The disappointment which this occasioned was partially soothed next year, 1752, by his election to the office of librarian to the faculty of advocates in Edinburgh at a salary of 40 pounds a year. For this post also a contest was waged, which, if Hume is not exaggerating, was attended with a good deal of excitement. "'Twas vulgarly given out," he writes to Dr. Clefane, "'that the contest was between deists and Christians. And when the news of my success came to the playhouse, the whisper ran round that the Christians were defeated. Are you not surprised that we could keep our popularity, notwithstanding this imputation, which our friends could not deny to be well-founded? The appointment was one of great value to Hume, on aiding his historical researches, but he did not long retain it. The resentment at a slight passed upon him by the curators led him, two years later, voluntarily to transfer the emoluments of the office to the blind poet Blacklock, and in January 1757, he resigned it altogether. The ten years succeeding the publication of the Political Discourses, the composition and publication of the successive volumes of the work which at length raised Hume to the height of a truly European fame, if it also exposed him to the blasts of adverse criticism at home. This was his History of England, extending, when complete, from the invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. Hume had begun by giving to the world his metaphysical and moral speculations. He had next developed in his essays his theories on taste, on politics, on economics, and had practically completed his message on all these heads. He was now to enter a field for success in which new powers were needed and which his principles would be at once applied and tested. Hume had but a poor opinion of the performances of his predecessors in the domain of English history. You know, he writes to Dr. Clefane, that there is no post of honor in the English language more vacant than that of history. Style, judgment, impartiality, care, Everything is wanting to our historians, and even rapin during this latter period is extremely deficient. On the other hand, he entertained no doubt at all of his own ability to produce a history worthy of the subject and of literature, and despite the glaring defects of the work to which reference will afterwards be made, posterity has on the whole accorded him the niche in the temple of fame he coveted. A remarkable circumstance was the extraordinary rapidity with which the successive installments of the history were composed. Hume conceived it wiser, though he afterwards regretted his decision, to begin with the period of the Stuarts, and before the end of 1754 he had published the first volume of his History of Great Britain, a quarto of 473 pages 
containing the reigns of James I and Charles I. Notwithstanding the discouragement which we shall see the reception of this first volume caused him, he had produced by 1756 his second volume, bringing down the narrative to the Revolution of 1688. His first volume was published by Hamilton, Balfour, and Neal, Edinburgh. His second by Andrew Millar, London, who thereafter secured the copyright of both and became the publisher of the subsequent volumes. Having finished his history of the Stuarts, he reverted to the period of the Tudors and in 1759 published the two volumes of his history of the House of Tudor. This was followed at no great interval than 1762 by two other quartos, comprising the history of England from Julius Caesar to the accession of Henry VII. Quartos, in fact, in this period of phenomenal activity, literally flowed from Hume. There remained, according to the original plan, the period succeeding the Revolution, and for a considerable time Hume had the preparation of this concluding part of his work before his thoughts. Bookseller and friends urged him to the task, but his visit to France and other engagements intervened, and all the pressure they could exert failed to bring him to set about the undertaking in right earnest. The project was finally abandoned, and apart from corrections and alterations of his volumes, Hume's literary productivity may be said to have ceased in 1762. The merits and defects of the history will be considered in their proper place, but a few words may be said here on the reception accorded to the work produced under these remarkable conditions. Hume's own account of the reception of the original volume is as follows. I was, I own, sanguine in my expectations of the success of this work. I thought I was the only historian that had at once neglected present power, interest, and authority, and the cry of popular prejudices. And as the subject was suited to every capacity, I expected proportional applause. But miserable was my disappointment. I was assailed by one cry of reproach, disapprobation, and even detestation. English, Scotch, and Irish, Whig and Tory, churchman and secretary, free thinker and religionist, patriot and courtier, united in their rage against the man who had presumed to shed a generous tear for the fate of Charles I and the Earl of Strafford. And after the first ebullitions of their fury were over, what was still more mortifying, the book seemed to sink into oblivion. Mr. Millar told me that in a twelve-month he sold only forty-five copies of it. Hume goes on to confess that this unexpected reception of his book discouraged him, so much so that had it not been that war was at the time breaking out between France and England, he would certainly have retired to some provincial town of the former kingdom, have changed his name, and never more have returned to his native country. Here, however, as in other instances, his excessive desire for popularity leads him to exaggerate the ill success of his volume. Hostility, intense and widespread, the history indeed did encounter, but the opposition rather gave it notoriety than doomed it to oblivion. Hume's own letters show that in Scotland, at least, it had a remarkably cordial reception. The sale, he writes to Adam Smith in December 1754, has been very great in Edinburgh, but how it goes on in London we have not been precisely informed. And to the Earl of Balcarus, on same date, 17th September, 
I am very proud that my history, even upon second thoughts, appears to have something tolerable in your lordship's eyes. It has been very much canvassed and read here in town, as I am told, and it has full as many inveterate enemies as partial defenders. The misfortune of a book, says Bolo, is not the being ill-spoken of, but the not being spoken of at all. The sale has been very considerable here, about 450 copies in five weeks. How it has succeeded in London I cannot precisely tell. Only I observe that some of the weekly papers have been busy with me. In truth, as we shall see, Hume had no reason to be surprised at the amount or violence of the opposition his history called forth. It had, as every critic admits, many of the qualities of a first-class historical work, but its excellences were counterbalanced by equally serious defects. Hume prides himself on nothing so much as on his impartiality. Yet impartiality, in the real sense of the word, is precisely the quality in which the work is conspicuously wanting. For the higher range of motives he has, as we shall see, little comprehension. Hence, while his generous tear drops for Strafford and Charles, he has no insight into the genius and meaning of a great religious movement like Puritanism, or into a character like that of Cromwell, who is to him throughout what he names him on his first appearance, this fanatical hypocrite. Yet Hume was genuinely amazed that anyone should impugn the justice, or challenge the perfect impartiality of his judgments. The second volume of the history, that dealing with the Commonwealth, Charles II, and James II, happened, Hume says, to give less displeasure to the Whigs and was better received. It not only rose itself, but helped to buoy up its unfortunate brother. It was really written with more caution. Hume was resolved, as he assured his publisher, to give no further umbrage to the godly. The publication of the volumes of the Tudors, on the other hand, revived all the former animosities. The clamor against this performance, he says, was almost equal to that against the history of the two first Stuarts. The reign of Elizabeth was particularly obnoxious. The fame of Hume, however, was by this time too securely established to be shaken by these outbursts of disapprobation. Still, the critics had not misjudged. Every new issue of the volumes showed that the spirit pervading them was one wholly antipathetic to genuine love of liberty. It is noticed that nearly all the changes in later editions are on the side adverse to popular rights. Hume himself says, In above a hundred alterations which further study, reading, and reflection engaged me to make in the reigns of the first two Stuarts, I have made all of them invariably to the Tory side. Nothing need be said of the volumes of the history prior to the period of the Tudors. These are the least original and valuable of the whole, and need to be corrected at every point from later research. End of chapter 3